0: This is from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, all the way through verse 36. Jesus said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful.
1: Thanks, David. Well, somewhere over the last couple of years, we had kind of a fun transition at our house, um, probably sped up by the dynamics of the pandemic. Our kids went from watching you know, Paw Patrol and Daniel Tiger cartoons to actually starting to show interest and be able to watch shows and movies that we were interested in, too. Now, we have to filter, of course. There's a lot of checking common sense media before we watch new stuff. But it's been especially sweet to actually introduce to them old favorites, like Sound of music, and Home Alone, and Parent Trap. Uh, we actually went to the drive-thru with friends to watch Shang-Chi, and that was really fun. And then most recently, Caleb came home from school, and uh, he shared that they were reading the book Wonder. And so naturally, we looked it up, and we found the movie, curled up on a Friday night, and watched it. And I'm no expert when it comes to critiquing film. There are those uh, much more well-versed in that in our church. But I really think that the character development in this film is really masterful. It's about a boy named Augie who is born with pretty severe facial deformities and then is subsequently homeschooled to protect him um, kind of in elementary school until middle school hits and the decision is made to send him off to school. The movie chronicles the bravery and the resilience that's needed from both him and his family as he walks through this transition into society with some really, really cruel kids. You start out watching the narrative, and you think you know where it's going, who is going to be the good kid, who's going to be the bad kid, but spoiler alert, The point of view, the storyteller, shifts several times through the course of the story and gives us, as a viewer, a multi-perspective view into motivations, parental influences, and other aspects of these kids' lives that really impact who they are and why they behave the way that they do. It recognizes that bullies are common, that some people are going to make life miserable for us, and it's a story of one boy and his family's response in the face of that. It's about dealing with enemies, and that's what we're talking about today. We're continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, or Sermon on the Flat Spot, where Jesus goes on from last week's teaching about blessings and woes in the kingdom of God to now talking about relationships with others, a very challenging teaching. Jesus recognizes in this teaching that we are going to have enemies in this life that relationships will get difficult, that we will experience persecution and mistreatment as people and as followers of Jesus. Yet our call is to respond in love. It is here that Jesus introduces for the first time in the book of Luke this word love, agape. There are three other words for love in the Greek. Eros, which is a passionate romantic love, Phileo, which is um, a friendly kind of love, telling us to love our neighbors as if they were family. And then storge, which is a familial love, protective and loyal. And then there's this one, agape, which is the same word used to explain the kind of redemptive love that God has for us. It's the word used in 1 John when it says, God is love. It's the word used in Art Vision verses as a church that David taught through in December, or... September, sorry, Um, John 13, 35, love one another. It's the same word for love that's used in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. The highest, most sacrificial form of love is how we are called to treat our enemies, to have genuine concern for others, irrespective of deservedness, attractiveness, or the likelihood of reciprocation. Let me say that again, so the challenge of it really sinks in. As Christ followers, we are called to love others, irregardless of deservedness, attractiveness, or the likelihood of reciprocation. This is a deeply challenging teaching. And Jesus meant it to be this way. He intends it to be striking to our ears and to our hearts. Not surprisingly, this was first said 2,000 years ago, and yet it's unbelievably relevant to us right now. Scripture is alive and active. It cuts to the heart of a lot of the division and hatred that we are experiencing in our society right now. Benefit of the doubt is lacking in extreme ways, in person, much less online. A lack that the pandemic and isolation have only aggravated. The Twitterverse, our political landscape, the echo chambers, we in general are not very open to the perspective and life experiences of others, even in relationship. If we stop to think about it, I wonder if there are relationships in our lives that have gotten strained through the pandemic, maybe overtly with some kind of misunderstanding or just strained and we don't really know why, the benefit of the doubt feels severely lacking. Keep that relationship in mind as we listen together today. The first learning we can pull out of this passage is that love is humble. Jesus starts here with, to you who are listening, I say. Love, this agape love that Jesus talks about, is humble. It's teachable. If you were at current groups this last week, we studied a parallel passage to last week's teaching that says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Our readiness has a lot to do with our softness of heart, with ownership in the reality that we don't have it all figured out. This kind of love is rooted in a deep dependence on something outside of ourselves. The message version translates it this way, to you who are ready for the truth. The reality of our culture today is this posture of listening or readiness is hard to find. As a society, we spend so much energy typing in caps angrily to people we can't see online or responding with anger and indignance and reposting things and yelling on Twitter. There's not a lot of listening and relationship in the dialogue. I saw this fascinating article recently that grieved our generation's loss of critical friendships. It started with describing a well-known 20th century friendship Supreme Court Justices Ginsburg and Scalia, how they had a genuine, respectful friendship, to the point where their families would celebrate New Year's together every year, and they would go on vacation together, despite drastically different ideological views. In many ways, they couldn't have been more different, and yet they were remarkably close friends. See, aren't they cute? That says a lot, and it's hard to find today. There's a reality that our society often sees friend as someone we agree with. And it might intuitively follow in our day and age that friends are also people we then listen to or that we take care to show love to. But that's not the only way of God's upside-down kingdom. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Jesus doesn't see love just in a reciprocal way. He calls us to a different cross-current way, too. To be careful about our allegiances and how tightly we hold on to things here on Earth. I saw a Christian theologian write recently, Dear Christian, if an attack on your preferred political party absolutely infuriates you, your allegiance may be misguided. We don't have ultimate allegiances to any one of Babylon's political tribes. Our allegiance is to the creator's upside down kingdom. Agape love is by its nature lavished on those who may see things differently, who we don't feel are deserving, who cannot give back, it's humble, and does not anger quickly. If you lead teams in any kind of environment, corporate, recreational, maybe here at Current, then you know the best team members, by far the most effective team members, are teachable ones, skilled and confident in their gifts, but also clear about weaknesses and quick to admit what they do not know. The ones that don't presume to know everything, humble and teachable, When Jesus begins this passage to you who are listening, he understands that some are not listening. What he says may fall on some deaf ears. So he's inviting us in to listen today, to have an open heart posture, to be the kinds of team members here in the kingdom of God that are humbly ready to give benefit of the doubt, to lean in to understand and be a part of his work of renewal. If you're here and you're not sure if you're on Team Jesus, we are glad that you are here. You're welcome wherever you are on your spiritual journey. He invites you to listen in too and to see if maybe some of this might just resonate. We also see from the passage that love takes initiative. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. It can be easy to read these verses in the first section of this passage and feel kind of indignant. I don't know about you, but my response is reactive when I hear this passage. What? A slap? If they slap me on my cheek, I'm supposed to turn to them, my other also? Or if someone takes something that belongs to me, I'm supposed to give them everything else? That's not reasonable. That doesn't make any sense. I think the pandemic put a lot of us into this kind of deeply reactive response mode, reactive to a world we have no control over, reactive to the opinions of others, What do you mean I have to stay home? What do you mean I have to wear a mask? What do you mean they're getting together inside and breaking the rules? What do you mean so-and-so won't wear a mask? Both sides, see, I went there. It could be really easy right now to spend all of our time in a reactive posture, being indignant about all that is not right in the world. Or even if you're not the angry kind, passively only loving others back when they express love to us. Jesus tells us pretty clearly here in verses 32 to 34 that reciprocal love is not that impressive. What credit is that to you, he says, scratching another's back when they've scratched ours. Anyone can do that. Now, is God happy when we love one another well? Yes, of course. We're called to that, and reciprocal relationships are precious. And to be real, if we could love those who love us with an agape kind of love, we'd be doing pretty well, right? But reciprocal relationships are not all we're called to in this life. We are called to love those who don't, or can't reciprocate too. This doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. Jesus uses striking examples in verses 28 to 30 to get our attention, to force us into self-examination. He acknowledges that we will likely experience deep hurt from others throughout our journeys here. People are going to curse or mistreat us, physically or emotionally. They will take from us, and the world may not always judge fairly in response. Most commentators agree that Jesus did not actually mean these verses literally. Jesus isn't promoting thoughtless generosity or reinforcement of bad behavior. Imagine what would happen if you parented by extending your other cheek when your kid slaps you, or if the authorities never dealt with robberies or abuse. Scripture is pretty clear in other areas that discipline is important, that evil is to be resisted, and that. Wrongdoing is to be dealt with by the authorities. Romans 13 lays something, some of this out, if you're curious. What Jesus is saying is that we are not to hold on to resentment, and that although our natural response when experiencing hurt is to protect and to retaliate, we have an opportunity to initiate with love. The kind of love he's talking about actually moves first, When we take the time to read this passage carefully, we start to see imperatives and positive commandments jump out at us. Verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. The message version says, grab the initiative and do it for them. Verses 27 to 28 carry multiple action words. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Love, do good, bless. Pray for. It's worth noting that most of the world's ethical teachings are structured as a don't. This is a do passage, and it's action-oriented because we may not feel like it. If someone has deeply insulted us or struck us or done something really bad to us, we're probably not having a lot of warm feelings toward them. right? We may not actually like them all that much. We are to do good, bless, pray for others despite in many cases, what we are feeling toward them. It's like working out. Before we start, most of us probably aren't super excited about it. I'm the world's biggest procrastinator when it's time to go for a run. I can come up with all kinds of different things to do before I have to put my sneakers on. It just happened yesterday. And it's painful to run, right? Anything growth-oriented generally is kind of painful. But it's good for us, and we do, in most cases, feel differently when we're done, more positively. Just like with endorphins, the feeling we have for our enemies may grow through initiative-taking, care, and action. The analogy breaks down at this point, though, because feeling good isn't really the reason God wants us to take initiative with those who are hard to love, although feeling good about it could be a great byproduct. Ultimately, we take initiative to love others in a merciful way because of the mercy that has been shown to us. This passage is not teaching us to do what is right. It's teaching us to do what is good. It's an appeal to seeing the world through a lens of divine grace instead of through our own principle of self-interest. Which brings us to our last point. Love's motivation matters. Our motive is what matters most to Jesus. Ulterior motives and self-interest-driven acts do not reflect the way of Jesus. Here's the interesting thing. We can look like we are loving, generous, doing good, and not actually be about the way of Jesus. In verses 32 to 36, Jesus is not contrasting his cross-current ways to what is bad. He is contrasting it to moral righteousness to doing it for the wrong reasons. It's clear he's not just about behavior and outward appearance. He's 100% about motivation. Have any of you guys seen the show The Good Place? There's a character named Tahani who thinks she's in the good place, or a characterized version of the afterlife, even though, huge caveat, it's not a characterization of the heaven scripture talks about, because the story's narrative says you have to earn your way there, which just isn't how the gospel works. But Tahani thinks she's made it. Right? She's in the good place because she raised so much money for charities through her life, and she did so many good things. But as the show carries on, you find that she's actually in the bad place because her motivations for doing good were entirely selfish and born out of self-interest, a desire to outshine her sister, a desire for self-glorification, to feel good about herself. Yikes! It is incredibly important as followers of Jesus that we are not motivated by the economics of this world, by the behavior of others toward us, but by the character of God. How he and the mercy he has shown to us give us a hope of eternity that transforms us. Verses 35 to 36, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, full stop, that's us, ungrateful and wicked. Therefore, be merciful just as your father is merciful. That is the crux of the gospel, and how the Christian faith differs from any other religion or ideology. There is literally nothing that we can do to earn ultimate grace and life everlasting. And it is entirely dependent on our acceptance of the disproportionate mercy that God shows toward us. Jesus loved us and showed us mercy when we were his enemy. And it is only through receiving what he did on the cross that we can have eternal life. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you can do that today. It's about saying, yes, God, I see that I need your mercy, and I see that there's more to life than this. I want to follow you. It is only because of God's mercy that we might have a fighting chance to respond disproportionately to our enemies, to how we are treated because we have the perspective to understand the mercy that has been shown to us, every one of us. The essence of God's teaching is an appeal to divine grace versus operating on the principle of self-interest, to understanding our own need for grace, God's story in our own lives, and then allowing that to give us the lens to see things from another's perspective and how God might be working it out in their lives. I feel like the older I get, the more I feel like I don't really understand, you know, the different ways that other people grew up, the life experiences of those around me, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I have to learn, right? In the workplace, learning the backstories of coworkers who grew up very differently, making very different life choices, realizing that people come to these jobs from all different routes and in all different ways. Serving in other countries, getting out of our first world bubble is a great way to gain perspective on God's story in our own lives and how he might be working it out in the lives of others, and of course, parenting. I feel like becoming a mom has been kind of like therapy in some ways, forcing me to look back on my own childhood through the lens of my kids' experiences. There was one instance a couple of years ago where Caleb got targeted by another kid at school, one that we might casually label a bully if we didn't know him. And Caleb got hurt enough one day that the teacher stopped me after class and told me about it, told me we should talk to the administration. It's one thing to be hurt ourselves, but touch our kids, right? And the gloves come off. But when we went in to talk to his teacher and we went in to talk to the administration, we realized that. It was a pattern. This clear this child had been disruptive kind of in the class from day one. It didn't really have much to do with who he was or who Caleb was. The teacher needed help. And through the conversation, we also learned that he came from a very broken family with a history of violence. Every time he came home to visit from his dad's place, he would be bringing back all these wrestling moves that he would then try on all the other kids at school. The more we listened, the more we realized how much this kid must be hurting and how his behavior had everything to do with what had been done to him and not who he was or even who our kid was. The conversation ended up not being about our rights as parents and our indignance at what had happened to our kid, but a discussion about a child who was deeply hurting and how we might be in a position to partner with the school staff to help. I wish we could say we became great friends with this kid's parents and everything was wonderful. That wasn't the case, but we did get a lot of opportunities that year to have conversations with our own kid about the situation, about the reality of a broken family, about violence in the home and what that must feel like, and to do our best to see how God might be transforming Caleb and us as parents through this experience. I had to go on several field trips with Caleb's class that year, and I did get to know this kid a bit to see glimpses of goofiness through what was clearly a lot of pain. The child ended up being in Caleb's class again two years later, still had behavior issues, still needed a lot of support, but every time I went into the classroom, it was crystal clear to me how much he liked Caleb and that he considered him a friend. He was always trying to goof around with him even if it got kind of disruptive, and that felt deeply redemptive to me despite the fact that it was still hard. They're not best friends, they don't even run in the same friend circle, but they're friendly. And I'm fairly confident God's used it to form Caleb and his understanding of the world, not to mention me and David on our spiritual journey. It was a micro example to me of what God must be doing in all our lives when we experience difficult relationships, when there are those who curse or mistreat or slap us. God is nudging us along to join him in the redemptive work he is doing in people all around us and especially in us. One of the reasons I think Wonder is such a masterful case in character development is this interesting journey where by the end of the movie, I can't figure out who I'm rooting for anymore. I mean, Augie is clearly the hero, but I found myself rooting for all the other kids too, for the girl that was mean to a sister that just seemed like this mean girl that you wouldn't want to have anything to do with until you hear her backstory. And then it makes sense, and you feel so happy for her when she reconciles with Auggie's sister and is back in relationship with the family, or the kid that bullied Auggie the most, who you assume is just a spoiled brat who gets everything he wants until you get a glimpse of his parents and realize, ooh, it must be really hard to be him, and I wouldn't want to be in his position. By the end of the movie, we're basically rooting for everybody to become friends, to be reconciled, and to be on the same team. I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus wants for us, too. Our broken world built around self-interest wants us to think that the kind of love God calls us to in this passage is impossible or unreasonable. Yet this kind of love is exactly the kind of love God created us for and how he first loved us. We are called to love with similar initiative, kindness, and generosity that gives us a privilege to join in God's work of renewal. The opportunity that Jesus calls us into is to destroy our enemies in the most impactful way possible by turning them into friends. But we won't be able to do it on our own strength. And we may not see every enemy respond in a positive way. Scripture is realistic about it. Romans 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And Jesus is giving us the tools and his principles for how to do our part. But ultimately, the results aren't in our hands. And we won't necessarily get to see it work out in every case. But that doesn't mean God isn't working. Even if we don't see the needle moving in someone's life, still we are to choose love because it flows from an understanding of God's mercy and love for us, an understanding that opens us to seeing another's perspective. Is there an enemy in your life that kept popping to mind for you this morning as we heard from Jesus? Someone at work, or in your family, or in your growing up years who deeply hurt you, who is totally undeserving of your love and care? Is there any initiative that you could take to do good bless or pray for them this week? Or maybe it's someone you haven't done a good job of giving benefit of the doubt to through the pandemic. Maybe you've made some assumptions on their motivations or what's driving their actions. You've made them into an enemy in your mind. Someone that you maybe could take some initiative to love this week. Take it one step wider. Do you have any relationships in your life that are entirely non-transactional? friends whom you love, not because of what they can do for you, not because of shared goals or politics or even stage of life, someone that you can invest in outside of anything you might receive in return. The goal is not ultimately our good behavior. It's a renewed and reconciled world with the shaping of our character along the way to become merciful as our Father is merciful and thus be able to join him in life-changing, eternal work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you loved us first, that because of your mercy, we have a model, that we have a glimpse of what it looks like to love others well. We pray that you give us the strength. We pray that you give us the softness of heart to be able to do that this week. Lord, if there are people in our lives, in this room, Lord, um, who you want us to take the initiative to reach out to this week, to love, to do good, to bless, to pray for, Lord, would you make that clear? Would your Holy Spirit be tugging on our hearts so incessantly this week that we cannot ignore you? We love you and we trust you with our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.